This is the Hasidic Story Project with Barack Holman, podcasting from Jerusalem, Israel. This podcast is sponsored by listeners just like you. To become a supporter of this podcast, please go to HasidicStory.com. H-A-S-I-D-I-C Story.com. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll never know. Shalom Aleichem, my sweetest friends. We're heading into Rosh Hashanah, and so I want to share a few short stories with you. Even though these stories are relevant for Rosh Hashanah, they're certainly good stories to hear all year round. So if you're listening to this when it's not Rosh Hashanah time, stick with us and hear the stories. The first story is a story that I heard from my rabbi, a blessed memory, Reb Shalom Brat. And this story also appears in my book that I wrote about Shalom called A Shtikl Shalom. The story is, a grandson of Rebbe Kiva Eger, who's one of the big Litvak, Snagid rabbis, whose name was Lebele, decided to become a chassid. And of all the Hasidic groups, he chose to be a chassid of the Kotzke Rebbe. Now, if you don't know anything about Kotzk, the Kotzke Rebbe spent a lot of time in his room, by himself apparently, learning the Kutei Moran, the teachings of Rebbe Nachman. And occasionally he would come out and say a Dvar Torah, and the Hasidim that gathered around the Kotzke Rebbe, they were a unique type of Hasid, and they were looking for the truth. They were always concerned about the truth. And are you living your life truly as a Hasid, as a Jew? Are you doing the mitzvot from a place of truth and not from a place of ego or what other people are expecting from you? And so for whatever reason, Reb Lebele was attracted to the Kotzke Hasidim and decided to become a Hasid of the Kotzke. And he came and spent Tishrei by Kotzk. So he was in the court, in the Chatzer, as they call it in Hebrew, of the Kotzke Rebbe. And he had spent Rosh Hashanah with the Kotzke, and now it was Yom Kippur. And they had finished Kol Nidre and the davening on the night of Yom Kippur. And in those days, when young men like him would come to the shul, they would simply sleep on the benches of the shul. And so some of the Hasidim are sleeping, and some are learning, and talking with one another. And two of the Hasidim, they look at Reb Leble, and they say, you know what? We got to initiate him. We got to bring him into the fold. So Berala says to his friend Chaim, hey, Chaim, it's Yom Kippur, right? And Chaim says, yeah, of course. W- what do you mean? He says, well, Yom Kippur is a Yom Tov, isn't it? It's a holiday, right? He says, yeah, of course it's a Yom Tov. He said, well, aren't you supposed to make Kiddush on Yom Tov? He said, oh, you're right. We have to make Kiddush on Yom Kippur. Of course. So Lebele, who's resting on a bench near these two guys, he opens one eye and he thinks to himself, what do you mean making Kiddush on Yom Kippur? You don't drink on Yom Kippur. For sure you don't make Kiddush on Yom Kippur. So Beryl says to Chaim, no, Chaim, go get the Kiddush cup and get the wine. Chaim comes back and he gives Beryl the Kiddush cup. He holds it in his hand. He pours for him the wine. He says, no, Beryl, let's go. Kiddush. She's like, you're right. Savimanan. He's about to start making Kiddush. And Label looks at them and he says, Stop. And Beryl and Chaim, they look at Label and they say, what do you want? He says, you can't make Kiddush. And Beryl says to him, why not? He says, because it's Yom Kippur. So, it's a Yom Tov. We have to make Kiddush. He says, you can't make Kiddush on Yom Kippur. Why not? Because everybody's fasting on Yom Kippur. And when you're fasting, you can't drink. But Beryl looks at Chaim. Chaim says, no, Beryl, let's go. Savimaranan. It's about to make Kiddush. And Label says, stop. And they say to him, no, Label, what do you want now? said, you can't make Kiddush. Why can't we make Kiddush? 
It's a Yom Tov. We have to make Kiddush. You can't make Kiddush because it says so in the Torah. They said, oh, really? It says so in the Torah. Mazel Tov. Savim Aranan. Stop. You can't make Kiddush. Why can't I make Kiddush? Who says so? It says so in the Shulchan Aruch, in the book of Jewish law. And Beryl and Chaim, they look at one another and they say, Shulchan Aruch. Savim Aranan. Label says, stop, you can't make Kiddush. And Beryl and Chaim, they say to him, why not? Why can't we make Kiddush? Who says so? And Label says, Hashem says so. And then Beryl puts down the Kiddush cup, pours the wine back in the bottle, and gives the bottle to Chaim, goes and puts it away. And they say to Label, if you want to be a Jew, you have to know that the reason that we do the mitzvot is not just because everybody does them, and not just because it's written in the Torah. And not just because it's written in the Shulchan Aruch, but because Hashem said so. That's why we do the mitzvot. That's why we Jews keep the commandments. Because Hashem said so. Such a strong story, my sweetest friends. Please share the story with anyone you think would listen. Because it's so important that we remember why we're doing the mitzvot. We're doing them because Hashem said so and is saying so all the time. Another story that I heard from Reb Shalom. I think I heard all these stories from Absalom. So on the birthday of the king in a certain province, he would release all the prisoners. And he had two ways of releasing them. One of them was letting them go home. Simply release from prison, go home. The other one was he would hang them on the gallows. And they'd be going home, but not in this world. And so word spread amongst the prisoners that it was the king's birthday. And everybody's pretty worried and upset. Because nobody knows if they're going to leave alive or dead. And the guard is walking back and forth between the prison cells. And he sees there's one prisoner. And he is dancing for joy. He's running around his cell. He's practically jumping off the walls. Spinning around. Singing. And the guard comes over to him and he says, Hey, hey, what's going on here? He says, I'm so happy. It's the king's birthday. And the guard says to him, What are you, a fool? You have no idea if you're going to live or die. The king might decide to hang you. You don't know if you're going home. The prisoner said, you don't understand. It's not a matter of whether I'm going to live or die. I am going to stand in front of the king. And my whole life I've been living in this kingdom. And I never got to see the king. I'm going to get to see the king today. And whether I live or die doesn't matter to me. I get to see the king. And for that, I'm dancing for joy. So the time came that each prisoner was brought in front of the king. And this prisoner comes dancing and singing in front of the king, escorted by the guard. The king says to the guard, What's with this guy? What is he, crazy? The guard says, You don't know. Earlier today, he was singing and dancing in a cell, jumping up and down, spinning around, practically jumping off the walls. And the king says to the guard, What was he thinking? He might die today. He said he was so happy to be in the presence of the king. It didn't matter to him if he lived or died. He just wanted to see the king. And so here he is, joyous in front of the king. So what do you think the king did, my sweetest friends? Do you think the king said, send him to the gallows and kill him, chas v'shalom? Or do you think that the king said, if he's so happy to see me, 
I want him to live. And so, of course, the king let him go, and the prisoner danced the whole way home. You see, when we come into Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it's true that there are days of awe, and there's judgment going on. And we say, Avinu Malkeinu, our father, the king. But we have to remember, my sweetest friends, that the king is our father. Imagine you're in court, and there's a judgment against you. And you look up and you see that the judge is your father. And he's smiling at you. And he wants only the best for you. So sing and dance, my sweetest friends. On Rosh Hashanah for sure. And on Yom Kippur, twice as much. There's a story of Reb Levi Yitzhak Berdichev, who was known to always find the good in everyone, in everything, and especially in his fellow Jews. And one time he was on his way to Slichot, Slichas, before Rosh Hashanah, and it started pouring rain. And his gabai, his assistant who was with him, sees an abandoned house and says to the Rebbe, come, let's go into the house. We go inside, and as the Rebbe's standing outside on the porch, which was covered with a small roof, he says to the gabai, go inside and make sure it's safe for us there. And the gabai goes inside the abandoned house, and he sees there's a bunch of thieves sitting around a fire. And one thief says to the other, You know, that theft of 5,000 rubles taps himself. I did that. I stole the 5,000 rubles. And one of the other thieves, he says, Oh, really? You stole 5,000 rubles? You know that theft of 25,000 rubles? That's me. I stole that. And another one says, Oh, yeah? You guys think you're good? You know that guy that was murdered? Chas v'shalom. I murdered him. Now the Gabbai is watching all this from a distance. And he runs back out to Reb Levi Yitzchak and he says, Rebbe, we need to get out of here. And the Rebbe says, why? What's going on? He says, this is a thieves' den. There's a bunch of thieves sitting around a bonfire and they're sharing stories. And Reb Levi Yitzchak says, like what? What did they say? This is the first one admitted to stealing 5,000 rubles. The second admitted to stealing 25,000 rubles. And the third one says he murdered somebody. Chas v'shalom. And Reb Levi Yitzchak Abertichev is silent and he raises his hands to the heavens. And he says, Master of the universe, look at what's happening here. The thieves of Berdichev are admitting all of their transgressions. And I, Levi Yitzchak, haven't even begun to say slichas. That's how you judge everyone and everything positively, my sweetest friends. I'll share one more short story with you. It's a famous parable of the Holy Baal Shem Tov. Once there was a king that had a very mischievous young son. And he would ask his father if he could go play outside with the other kids, outside of the castle. The father said to him, one day you're going to be the king, and kings can't play with other kids. But eventually the son, he had this desire to escape. And one day when nobody was looking, changed his clothes, hid under some baskets in a wagon, Within a few minutes, he'd escaped the castle. And he was free. He jumped out of the wagon. He started playing with the other kids and having fun. Within a short amount of time, he ran out of money. And he was homeless on the streets. But he didn't want to go back to the castle. It was too boring. So he learned how to beg. 
and he learned how to live off the streets, and he was constantly moving around so that none of the king's guards would ever catch him. And he wandered from city to city and country to country. Days turned into weeks and months and years, until after ten years had passed, this young boy had become a strong young man. He didn't look anything like the prince that he was. His clothes were ragged and torn. He was dirty, had long fingernails and hair. He looked like a bit of a wild animal. And of course, he wasn't looking to play games with kids anymore. Now he just felt like he had to keep moving, collecting money, trying to find food and places to sleep. And after many years of wandering, one day, without realizing it, he returned to the country where he was born. But he had left when he was a young boy and he didn't remember anything. The first place he went was a huge castle, because he figured there he might get some money. But as soon as he began trying to get through the gates, the guards pushed him back, and he got into a fight with the guards. Meanwhile, over the ten years that this boy had been gone, every day the king would climb one of the high castle towers and look out in the distance, praying for his son, hoping that he was safe. He had already sent out hundreds of guards and people to search for his son for years. But nobody had found his son, and he would remember his sweet little ten-year-old boy who had escaped, and he would cry for his son. And every day he would say, I hope he's doing okay. I wish he would come back. And as the king was standing there, ready to turn around and go back to his room, the fight with the wild-looking, dirty, homeless guy and the guards at the gate was happening. The guards were surprised by how strong and fast this wild man was. And then, without any explanation, the wild man lifted his head up and saw the old king standing on the tower, and he started to cry. And the wild man, he says to himself, why am I crying? I never cry. And then he realized, wait a minute, this castle is my home, and I'm the prince that that old man, the king, is standing and looking for. That king up there is my father. But as he was looking at the king... The guards got their chance, and they hit him really hard. And he tried to protect himself, but they were beating him, and he was about to faint. And so he cried out to his father, and he said, Father, Father, help me. Save me, Father, please. But after all those years of traveling, people spoke different languages in different countries, and he didn't remember the language that was spoken when he was a boy. And so even though he was saying, Father, please help me, save me, his father didn't understand him, and so he turned to walk away, and suddenly, from his neshama, from his soul, the young man screamed out from someplace deep inside of him. It was a broken cry, and he said, <laughs> The king turned around, and he said to himself, What was that scream? And again, the young man screamed, from the deepest place in his heart and his soul. And then the king ran, and he looked down, and the wild man looks up, and their eyes meet. And the king realizes that those eyes are the eyes of my son. And the king ran down the stairs, out of the castle gate, tells the guards to get away from his son, and he goes and gives a hug to the wild man with the dirty clothes and the long hair. And he says, my son, my son, don't ever leave me again. And the prince was welcomed home again. And this is the parable of the holy Baal Shem Tov, who says that the king is Hashem, is God, Kadosh Baruch Hu, and the wild man is the Jewish people.
and the castle is the shul, and the scream of the sun is the blast of the shofar. Sometimes we get so far away from Hashem that Hashem doesn't recognize us, and we don't recognize ourselves. But once a year on Rosh Hashanah, we come to shul, and we realize that we are actually the children of the king who's creating everything all the time and more. And since sometimes we forgot the language, we can't really open up our hearts. That's why we blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. And the shofar is a scream from the deepest place in our Jewish soul, crying out, saying, Father, Father, save me. Bezat Hashem, my sweetest friends. May we reach that place from our davening. And if not from our davening, from our shofar blowing, and truly do tshuva, which is to shuv Hashem, to return back to who we truly are and connect with Hashem. Because we know that when Hashem created the world, Hashem had you and me in mind. We are sitting here right now because when Hashem created the world, He knew that everything would have to happen in order for you to be created. That's how important you are. Sometimes we get lost, and that's why we need to do tshuva and to return to who Hashem had in mind when He created the world. May we merit to do it from a place of simcha. Here's one more story that was shared in previous episodes, just in case anyone didn't get to hear it or doesn't remember it. In the old city of Jerusalem, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, everyone knew about the shofar blowing of Rabbi Yoel Chaim Weisfinger. He was a legend in the old city. Every year on Rosh Hashanah, hundreds of people would come to his shul in order to hear him blow the shofar. And it was said that the shofar that he blew was many hundreds of years old and had been passed down from generation to generation in his family. In the year 5674, 1913, Rabbi Yoel passed away and he left behind him two sons, Shimon and Leibel. And he didn't say which of them would inherit the family shofar and who would have the honor of blowing it on Rosh Hashanah in the shul. So the two brothers, Shimon, who was the oldest, and Leibel, who was younger, they came up with a compromise and decided that Shimon would inherit his father's little makolet, the little grocery store they had in the old city, while Leibel, the younger brother, who was a Talmid Chacham, would inherit the shofar. Several years passed, and Shimon decided to try his luck in America. He sold the grocery store and emigrated to the Golden Medina, the United States. When he was there, he opened a business, and he became very successful. Within a short amount of time, he was a very wealthy man. In the meantime, there was a war between the English and the Ottoman Turks in the Holy Land. And one day, Leibel is walking on the street, and he was an English citizen, having grown up in the land of Israel when it was ruled by the British. And as he's walking in the street, some Turkish soldiers grab him, arrest him, throw him into jail, and deport him to Egypt. And the only thing that he had in his hand at the time was his father's shofar. There he was on a boat, leaving the Holy Land, going to Egypt with his father's shofar. Not long after Libel was sent to Egypt, a ship arrived in the Holy Land with a cargo of food that was donated by American Jews. They knew that their brothers in the Holy Land were suffering and didn't have enough food, and having money, they bought food and brought it over. One of the passengers on that ship was a Mr. Sam White, who was a director 
of the aid committee bringing the food. And before he changed his name to Sam White, he had been known as Shimon Weisfinger. When Sam arrived in the Holy Land, of course he went to Jerusalem to look for his brother. And when he heard that his brother had been sent to Egypt, he immediately went to Jaffa, got on a boat, and sailed to Egypt with his American passport. It was a miracle, but he was able to find his brother. He bribed the guards, got his brother out of jail, brought him back to Jerusalem, and gave him enough money to get back on his feet. And on the day that Sam was leaving to go back to America, Libel, who was overcome with emotion and so grateful to what his brother had done for him, gave his brother their father's shofar as a way of saying thank you for saving my life. Sam was very touched. He took the shofar. And on the whole boat ride back, he kept it in sight. He stroked it. He looked at it in the sun. He admired it. He never took his eye off the shofar. As they were getting closer to the port in America, Sam put the shofar in his suitcase. And when he came home, the only thing that he could talk about was his father's shofar. And when he went to show his family, he opened the suitcase. And to his shock and dismay, the shofar was gone. He couldn't understand that he had put it in the suitcase himself. He went back to the port. Nobody had seen the shofar. He contacted the company. Nobody had heard anything about the shofar. Nobody knew what he was talking about. The shofar had simply disappeared. The years passed, and the financial situation of the Jews of Jerusalem got even worse. It reached the point that Leibel and his family decided to move to Poland. Because Leibel, who was a Talmud Chacham, was offered a position as a rabbi in Poland. And he hoped that his financial problems were over. But, unfortunately, it wasn't long before the Second World War began. The Germans, Yamach Shemam, invaded Poland. The next few years were pure hell for Leibel and his family. They suffered through the Holocaust, but miraculously, somehow... He survived. When the war was over, Leibel spent several years going from DP camp to DP camp and hoping eventually to return to Eretz Yisrael. One Erev Rosh Hashanah, he was a group of other survivors from the Holocaust, traveling from place to place, and they arrived at the home of a kind Italian farmer who agreed to let this group of Jews stay over for Yom Tov. They were saddened by the fact that they didn't have a shofar, but at least they were grateful that they had a minion and they could daven together. Rosh Hashanah came and went, and Leibel and his friends were about to leave when the Italian farmer asked them to sit down for a minute. I have something that's been bothering me for many years, and I have to get it off my chest once and for all. Many years ago, I worked on a ship that sailed from Palestine to America, and one of the passengers there was a wealthy American Jew. There was a package that he held on to all the time, like it was a great treasure. And when the ship arrived in America... Everyone was rushing to get off the boat, and I saw it as my opportunity to go into his suitcase and steal the treasure. But when I opened it up, I was disappointed to see that it's just this strange thing. And then the farmer pulls out this old shofar. I know this is some kind of Jewish object, but I haven't met any Jews since I stole it. And now that you guys are here, I want to give it back to the Jewish people. So here, please take it. The group at first was disappointed that they didn't hear about this before Rosh Hashanah because they could have blown the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. But no one had noticed that Leibel, Weisfinger, had turned white and was getting dizzy, and it seemed like he might faint. He sat down, 
And everybody asked Leibel, what's going on? What's going on? Leibel said, this shofar is my father's shofar. And I gave it to my brother for saving my life. You stole the shofar from my brother when he was traveling back to America. So Leibel had received his father's shofar in return. And eventually he returned to Jerusalem. And after the war, Sam White sold his business in America, decided to return to the Holy Land, and also went back to using the name Shimon Weisfinger. When the two brothers got together, of course they embraced, and they were very happy to see one another. And then Leibel pulls something out of a bag and shows his brother the long-lost shofar. And the brother lost his breath. Where did you find that? Leibel told his brother the incredible story after surviving the war and ending up at the Italian farmer's house and the shofar coming back to him. That year in Rosh Hashanah, the two brothers davened together in their father's shul in the old city of Jerusalem, and Leibel blew the shofar that his father had left to him all those years before. Thank you so much for listening, my sweetest friends. I want to bless you, as always, with a good and sweet new year. K'tiva, chatima, tova, l'shana tova metuka. May we be blessed with only revealed good and to be able to taste the sweetness. And I want to thank one of the new supporters of the Hasidic Story Project, Holy Sister Tsipora in Ontario, Canada. Thank you so much for your contribution. It's greatly appreciated. And may you and your family be blessed. And everybody who contributes, thank you so much for your contributions. And to all the listeners, thank you as well. That's it until next week, when we'll be on the next Jewish year. 
sei gesund.